We've all heard so much about how blue light damages our sleep. There's a range of products on the market, blue light blockers, and it's all in the range. But why is the blue screen light the number one myth of our time? Is the blue light myth just a marketing strategy to fuel the sleep industry and market these sleep products? This conversation is a research-based one where Professor Michael Gradisa takes us through conflicting data and helps us understand this big blue light myth out there. Hey there, I'm Deepa, the Sleep Whisperer, and you're listening to another episode of the Sleep Whisperer podcast. Michael Gradisa is a professor of psychology and clinical psychology at the Child and Adolescent Sleep Clinic at Flinders University, Australia. He has published over 120 scientific studies, book chapters, and books including publications investigating the effects of screen light before bedtime. Indeed, he is one of the leading researchers into the links between technology use and sleep, as well as treatments for young people. Professor Gradisa is a sleep scientist and a sleep practitioner. He's helped improve the sleep of hundreds of small ones and tall ones. He's also a sleep teacher of high school students, university students, researchers, and health professionals from all over the world. He's not a James Blunt lookalike, although he does like to joke around. My dear friend and fellow sleep expert shared this wonderful testimonial about the show. This title on Apple Podcast is titled Brilliant. Deepa Kannan, the host of the Sleep Whisperer podcast, is an amazing resource for people struggling with sleep and chronic health challenges. She seamlessly blends experience and knowledge of functional medicine with a deep understanding of ancient medicine from her native culture, India. It's my delight and honor to be interviewed by Deepa and to have her as a colleague in the fascinating practice of supporting people with their sleep. Thanks so much, Susie. We're all together in this mission to help improve global sleep challenges. Now take a listen to episode number 47 of the Sleep Whisperer podcast. Welcome to the Sleep Whisperer podcast. I'm your host, Deepa. Join me and my many expert guests and medical professionals from the cutting-edge science of functional medicine of the West and ancient wisdom of the East. Learn all about how to discover your root causes of poor sleep and understand the proper tools and techniques to end your confusion and begin getting a good night's sleep. It's time to regain hope and begin your sleep journey with the Sleep Whisperer podcast. Professor Gradisa, welcome to the Sleep Whisperer podcast. It's a pleasure to have you and I know that uh, we've been planning this for a while and what really got me so interested this morning was seeing your latest article and we'll come to that in a moment. But 
I think the world of sleep is focused on blue light and how the impact of screens are, is so detrimental to us. So to see your article today that this is the biggest myth. In fact, when I read the article, I also saw it's utter BS and I don't want to swear on the show, but that was so interesting to me. So I do want to talk about that. but. What got what brought you into the space of sleep? And you're also a professor, so do you focus lecturing on sleep itself? Uh, it's a little bit of what I do in terms of lecturing, but in answering your first question about how did I get into this space, well, you know, I went to Flinders University, and that's where uh, a person called Professor Leon Lack was a lecturer. And he taught uh, in third year undergraduate a whole topic on sleep, and I just found it fascinating. Um, and he's a brilliant storyteller, and I got fascinated with the whole sleep area. And then a few years later, there was a, a research assistant position um, in his lab, in his sleep laboratory. I was like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll apply for that. I need some money. Uh, I was a poor postgraduate student, and um, I just found it fascinating to the point that I then wanted to do a PhD in the area. And, uh, and I did that with Leon and uh, had a co-supervisor called Dr. Helen Wright. And I guess this leads into what we're talking about today, because uh, as much as my PhD was looking at insomnia and circadian rhythms, um, I was, I was uh, supervised by two people that invented um, what's called the Retime glasses, which is uh, green LED glasses. Uh, that's used to really mimic the sun uh, when you can't get access to the sun and help people change their circadian rhythms and their body clock timing and improve their alertness. So, you know, it's been interesting that I've learned how to use bright light, you know, for uh, improving sleep. But uh, I think, you know, eventually when I finished my PhD, I got a job at the university, but it was in clinical child psychology. And I was like, oh, okay. And they said, You've got the job, but you can't work in it with adults. You've got to work with kids. So I started working with kids and teenagers and infants and still do some work with adults. But um, eventually, after a few years in the area of technology and sleep, which is one of the key research themes that I work on, uh, we found that there was all of this talk about the blue light from screens and how you can't be in front of a bright screen for an hour before bed. But... There was no study that tested that back in 2012. And so we went, well, I guess learning about sleep. And then a few years later, I got a job in his sleep laboratory. And then one day he said, oh, how about you do a PhD in this area? And I was like, well, yeah, sounds fantastic. And and then there was a position going uh, after my PhD finished and it was for a clinical child psychology. And obviously I learned about adult insomnia and circadian rhythms and and I thought, well, yeah, it'd be fantastic just to do this with kids. And, and I think, you know, after a while, we went to do a lot of research with teenagers and infants and kids. And, and definitely technology was coming up, you know, about a decade or so ago. And we started looking at that. And then one time we sort of like looked at the research literature and we saw that there was all of this talk about don't spend an hour in front of a bright screen because of the blue light coming from the screen. But there was not one study that tested being in bright screen light and its effect on sleep because of this blue light. So we thought, well, we better test it. And that's like the start of the, uh, the blog that you read today.
Mm. So for someone who is a lay person who's just listening to this, because there is recently a lot of interest in uh, keeping children away from the screen at night. And I, do, I want to be cautious about your article as well, because I don't want it to become a license for everybody to just go ahead and allow their kids to be with screens for a very long time. And there's more to this. And I think you also would agree the stimulation. But what exactly, break down your article for us. When you say this is a big myth, what, what's the science behind it? And what are your thoughts for writing this article? Yeah. So probably one way to sort of look at this is to say, okay, well, the study that we ended up doing that was um, published in 2014, we were hearing a lot about you shouldn't use a bright screen in the hour before bed because it's very stimulating. It reduces the melatonin that naturally rises up, which is the sleepy hormone, and it will make it difficult to fall asleep. That was really the hypothesis. So we had teenagers coming into our sleep lab and on one night we would give them an hour of a bright screen or we would give them a completely dim screen and because what happens is that uh, when we look at white light and you break that up into different colors, which it is like, say, for instance, a rainbow is basically sunlight that goes through, uh, you know, a water droplet and creates that. So white light and the screen light, it has all the different colors of the rainbow, but it's the blue and the green that's very alerting. And so there was an app back in 2012, actually. Uh, called f.lux and we applied yes. that to the screen and it reduces the blue light so you get that sort of more of a glowy orangey type of uh, screen and in fact now apple has replicated it as apple does they always copy things uh, and so they've got their night shift mode as well yeah i'm having a dig at them um so I guess what happened was that we were really uh, fascinated because we gave the teenagers all of these different conditions in a controlled laboratory environment. We made sure that they went to bed at their usual bedtime. And I think that's important for your listeners is what, you, what we're saying is it's really important when you're doing this to change one variable, which was the right. screen, but don't change your bedtime, go to bed at the same time. How alerting is it? How long does it take you to fall asleep? And when we tested the differences, it wasn't that much at all in terms of minutes. It was only like a few minutes, really. So we were surprised by that. We managed to get it published. But then over time, other people around the world were starting to do the same sort of testing over in Switzerland and Sweden and Norway, and they were finding the same thing. So to sort of bring it to a bit of a, a focus, what it looks like is if you spend an hour of your time in front of a bright screens up to your usual bedtime, it doesn't actually affect your time taken to fall asleep. That's one of the conclusions, mm. but it's important that people don't delay their bedtimes because it could do that potentially at home. Uh, in fact, I must say that I myself, this is great new news to me, but I there was, there are some days of the week where I have calls which are, delay my bedtime a little bit more than usual and I 
actually did say that it's because I'm on the call and I'm exposing my eyes. And I now that you say it, yes, there was a variable in terms of my bedtime itself was delayed by those days. So I'm going to try the same thing out as you said. And I do want to also get your thoughts because you did take a dig at a lot of people who are probably using this myth, as you call it, to uh, market various devices, including blue light blockers. There was a very obvious dig right there on your uh, article itself. So uh, yes, so do you feel that this has come about as a way, means to sell and market sleep products? Uh, certainly, I mean, you know, and to sort of go backwards, like when I was supervised by my supervisors, which was, uh, you know, Professor Leon Lack and Dr. Helen Wright, they, um, Helen Wright, her thesis was looking at the different colours of light and which ones are more potent at actually changing our sleep patterns. And it was bright green and bright, bright blue glasses. But to use those to help people. So, for instance, when people are having trouble and their body clock is timed in the wrong direction, you can use these bright green glasses to be able to shift it to the right place. You know, so it's done for good, but they're very strong. They're 500 lux, you know, mm. in terms of brightness. When we tested the iPad, it was 80 lux, which was much less. And I guess there's, there's, I am having a dig uh, at people because uh, I don't like the fact that people are potentially being robbed. Uh, it's, it's a, it was actually quite a lot of money that uh, one particular person was trying to sort of sell glasses for kids, mm. and. Uh, and I had sort of mentioned, at least on a couple of occasions, here's my blog, you know, here's my research, read this, please, because you're actually not saying something that's accurate here. And it was always ignored. And then when I got to the point of trying to then sell something based upon this myth, I was like, okay, that's enough. I'm going to now call spade, call it as it is, because I think it's really important. And this is a part of the ethos at, um, at my business called Wink is that it's not only just teaching people about sleep, but trying to teach people about being critically analytical about information. And I guess, you know, this past year has been about that, you know, when it comes to COVID, you know, some people don't believe it, but, you know, you should really listen to the science. And uh, sometimes I guess some of these blogs, like the one that you read today, I'm trying to go through the science and not just take it face value what it is, yes. have a look at it and critically analyse it. No, absolutely. Article had a lot of references, which was which is what made it so made me open my eyes to that. But I do want to ask you because I commented on your article itself about the reductionist approach. I want us to talk a little bit about that because I just got a quick look at your reply, and you're right that. Uh, in a real world setting, we cannot be looking at it from that approach, but it does require that approach in a lab to actually understand the science behind it. So I'd like to know, have you looked in all of this, whether uh, you said there was no difference in the screen, uh, the light emitting from the screen, if provided the bedtime was unchanged. Uh, were you able to look at whether there was an influence on the nature of what they were watching, um, you know, stimulating versus was there a difference in terms of the content itself? That's a, that's a fantastic question because prior to this study, we looked at content in a different way. So 
our first study that we published in 2010, we had teenagers coming in and we had them playing a violent video game in the hour before bed in bed. And on another night, we had them watching a documentary about penguins. So we were basically hypothesizing that the video game is interactive. You're always like making a movement. It's changing the screen. You've got to respond to it. There's this continuous interaction with the TV. You can't change it. It's called passive. And so we hypothesized that it was going to take longer to fall asleep because of the video game and that activity compared to watching the TV. Again, we made sure people went to the bed at the same time and we were going to look at how long it took them to fall asleep. Now, this is the key thing. Our statistics found a statistically significant difference. So in other words, it took statistically longer to fall asleep after playing the video game compared to the TV. When we looked at the number of minutes, it was only like four minutes difference. Mm. And so it's like, well, that's nothing if we look at it in the real world sense. And so we've done a couple of studies where we have looked at content and how interactive and engaging it is, especially like, I guess, with video games, because that was the most engaging thing back in the early 2010s. Um, and we weren't, we haven't been able to find that we've been able to disrupt sleep. So that's why we went then to the screens and again, we're having trouble finding that that was affecting sleep. But then we started to take a different approach with our laboratory studies. And I think we've come closer to understanding what's going on. And what is going on, Michael? It's when you don't tell people to go to bed. When they are allowed to choose their own bedtime, that's one component of it. Another component of it is their personality characteristics. We found teenagers who were less conscientious would stop playing a video game later. We also found teenagers that get into this uh, state called flow, where they lose track of time, they're in this zone, they would turn off the video game later as well when we said you can play it for as long as you want. But it's also the technology itself because the video games that we started giving the teenagers we found that it was harder to manipulate the difficulty level manually. Um, and flow is about making it far too challenging that people give up and go to bed or too boring and they give up and just turn it off and go to bed. But what we learned was that video game developers were starting to develop AI, which then meant that you couldn't manipulate the difficulty. They did it for you and they're calling it convenience. But what's happening is that, that if the enemies become too hard they make them a bit easier if they're getting a bit too easy they make it a little bit more challenging so you stay in this zone of flow which means you keep playing their game for longer and now i guess what we've seen in the last say several months is a documentary called the social dilemma on netflix mm. same thing there are companies that are trying to keep you engaged and using their technology and it's the interaction between what they're trying to do and the people that are susceptible to it, meaning that they will push and delay sleep. So that's what we believe is now happening when it comes to technology use and sleep. So Michael, I must ask you this because you said that screen uh, blue light is a myth, but what are your thoughts on circadian rhythm? Um, yes, you did speak that if someone has a bedtime, they need to stay with it. But what I'm asking you instead is, do you feel that uh, there is a general bedtime for everybody that you don't sleep 
way past midnight do you feel there is science to circadian rhythm itself or is that also something that you're trying to break apart well that was part of my phd um and you know i was in a laboratory for an entire weekend having one participant in there measuring various parts of this circadian rhythm and so i've had that experience directly measuring this circadian rhythms um, I know that they exist. I know how they cycle and, and how long it takes. Uh, so they definitely do exist. And then, you know, when I work clinically as a, as a clinical psychologist with, uh, you know, families, teenagers, adults, you know, even babies, uh, you can see by them filling out what's called a sleep diary, you can see where their average or most common time will be that they fall asleep and the most common time that they'll wake up. And that's the circadian rhythm telling them when to sort of shut off and when to wind up uh, and you know it is also now referred to as chronotype mm. so you'll have people that are an early chronotype and a late chronotype and you know the work by Till Ronenberg in Germany who invented really the this concept of chronotype he does show that it really does delay from 10 years of age to about 20 and then it turns about and starts to become earlier from there uh, there's far too much research to say yes we definitely have circadian rhythms they vary in terms of their length um, and it's more likely that they tick for longer than 24 hours, especially in young people uh, and teenagers. So I know we are short on time, Michael. I just want to ask you, in case you had somebody come to you who's having sleep issues, just could, could you quickly break down what would be your approach to helping them sleep again? Yeah, well, it's broadly speaking in two parts. It's really doing an assessment. And when we say assessment, like I mentioned before, we get them to fill out a sleep diary, sometimes some surveys. Uh, but then we'll also do what's called a clinical assessment, which is spending about 45 minutes to an hour asking them lots of different questions about their sleep and getting all those answers. And when we get all that information, we can then sort of go, okay, we think these are the things that are causing their sleep. And therefore, in working in clinical psychology, meet and train that way, and with circadian rhythms, I know that I've got CBT for insomnia, which is composed of the different types of behavioral and cognitive techniques. Mm. And I also know about the different circadian rhythm treatments as well. So if I, for instance, see that a particular person has a circadian misalignment, that'll be the first thing that I work on. And I'll try to put that in the sort of right place for them. And once that's done, there can still be some residual insomnia. So I'll use some insomnia techniques to try to make sure that they're able to sort of fall asleep quicker or not wake up so much during the night. And uh, that's, I guess, the broad framework there. But obviously when we do this, it's like spending a session like one hour per week for say four to six weeks. And it's just amazing because it's so powerful. It, it does work for the vast majority of people, when we evaluate our treatments, you're talking about 80% success or more. Um, and you don't often get that with a lot of treatments. And this is for people that have had these, you know, ment uh, sorry, uh, sleep disorders for like five to six, eight years. Um, and to change that in a matter of weeks, sometimes they're just like, I don't trust this. This is might be a fluke. I can't believe that it was this easy to change. And for some people, they say it's life changing. 
Beautiful, Michael. Thank you for your time. And we have just a little mantra on our show. So I'd like you to complete our mantra, which is if sleep is the new medicine, then how would you complete it? So sorry, if sleep is the new medicine, then how would, how would you then, complete it for us? Then it is something that we should do every 24 hours of our life. Thank you, Michael. And if people want to have a look at your work, you've got great articles. Where, where's the best place that they can find you? Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, we've got a website called winksleep.online. Uh, sometimes you can even just Google wink sleep as one word or two separate words. Uh, we've got about 60 blogs there now. Uh, we've got a range of videos. We've got, uh, like for health professionals, we've got courses uh, that are available there as well. We've got a membership uh, where we do some live Q&As and we talk about different topics and there's different resources there. Um, and so I think there's just a whole range of different sort of, you know, free information to learn. And the key thing, like I've said, is really that there's so many people that are talking about sleep um, and they're, they're sometimes not getting it right. They don't actually have that sort of sleep science background. Um, and, you know, I'm also a practitioner, so I know how to apply that science to the individual as well. So um, hopefully that'll help your listeners to be able to sort of get to some place where they can find uh, some sleep science that works for them. Thank you, Michael, for giving me our time today. Very quick, but it was excellent time together. And uh, um, I think our listeners are at least going to get an idea of how to look for the right kind of information, the right space. Thank you for your time as well. I hope you enjoyed the show. Just a reminder that this podcast is for information purposes only. This is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified health professional. This information is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you are looking for personal help on your health journey, do seek out a medical practitioner. Please do make your own healthcare decisions based upon your research and in partnership with your doctor or otherwise qualified healthcare professional. It is in no way intended as medical advice as a substitute for medical counseling or as treatment or cure for any particular health condition. Be sure to always work directly with a qualified health practitioner before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle that may feel out of your realm of comfort or understanding. If you are looking for an allied functional medicine practitioner, do seek out more information on www.phytothrive.com or www.sleepwhisperer.pro. It is important that you have someone who is qualified and understands your health personally in order to provide adequate care, especially when it comes to chronic health conditions.